is time for peer pressure. Welcome. My guest this week is Larry Livermore, known for being the uh, owner and originator of Lookout Records, member of the Lookouts, author, Spy Rock Memories, which is a newly published book. We'll be talking to him about the book, about the early sounds of the, uh, the Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco scene, Gilman Street, a little bit about Green Day, of course. And Signs of the Times. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast. And to Liz Berg for handling the other podcast duties. We are WFMU. Larry Livermore is up next. Stay tuned. Hi there. Oh, we have Larry Livermore is in the studio live. And uh, welcome. Thank well, Thank you. Thank you for having me here. This is uh, pretty exciting for me. Uh, WFMU is kind of a legendary presence in my in my punk rock career. And this is the first time you've actually been here. Ex- and exactly. You've heard the stories. <laughs> Not just that. I'll tell you, though, when I first uh, became aware of w- WFMU was way back in maybe 88 or so. Mm-hmm. And we had just started Lookout Records. And we were having trouble getting anybody to even pay attention to us in our, in our own local area. Mm. And we started seeing these playlists that this station out on the East Coast was, was playing our songs. And in fact, sometimes they were getting a lot of play. And we were like, wow, what kind of place is this? And then when our bands first started going out on tour, uh, some of them ended up uh, coming here and playing here on the air. And oh, yeah. They all raved about what a, a great station. It was like a, a little bit of uh, the East Bay or the West Coast in, in exile, as they saw it. Mm. They were, they were s- Californians tend to be very, um, narrow. I, I hate to say narrow-minded, but I was one for a long time, and I was. And we kind of thought, like, can't be good unless it's on the West Coast. Oh, and really? Yeah, we we were very uh, we were very uh, snobbish in those days about mm. the East Coast and New York in general. I'm thankfully I I got over that, and in fact I've kind of reversed my sentiments, and I'm much happier on the East Coast. Oh, awesome! Well, that's funny though, because especially being part of an underground music scene, to be narrow-minded is probably like it's like you know kind of goes mean? with the territory. Well, I guess, but it, but if you're trying to get discovered and trying to get out there, like you said in, in your book, which we'll get to in a minute, that there are a lot of a lot of people in the area were hippies, you know, and not not really open to the kinds of new music, the new the new sounds that were happening. It just occurs to me as you said that, and I hadn't really thought about this before, but almost every great and exciting new musical movement is very open at the beginning. This was true of '77 punk, also, mm-hmm. um, but very quickly closes ranks and infor- imposes uniformity. Yeah. Uh, and I if wonder I what that is. What's that aspect? I just realized, too, it's not just musical or c- countercultural things that do that. I mean, religions. Like You get some new prophet comes along with, like, you know, come follow me, everything's going to be awesome, and the next thing you know, you've got a whole set of rules that if you don't do this, you're, you're going to burn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes down to burning with religion, doesn't it? Not always, actually. We've been having a, a lively discussion online about about that, but I think that's for another <laughs> for another I th- day. I think so. Well, and so the reason that you're here is because you have a, a book, Spy Rock Memories, and uh, how uh, how is is the book out yet? The book is out as of about 
gosh, it's been almost a month now. Oh, great. And uh, I'm proud to say it's uh, published by a New Jersey publisher, Don Giovanni Records, who are... Oh, awesome. They're a great record label. They are one of, if not the best, in my opinion, of independent labels. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they deal in a style of music that's somewhat different from what I worked with back in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, and 90s. However, they seem to operate on very much the same kind of principles. I think they're a lot more together. I mean, we were very chaotic, and I was very chaotic in, mm-hmm. in putting together Lookout. Uh, I think the, the the guys at Don Giovanni seem to have a pretty clear idea what they're doing. Have they put out a book before? This is their first. Oh, I'm, great. I'm hoping they will continue in that, that vein because they're, everybody involved with the label is, is a very intellectual and literary type person. I hope they won't be mad at me for saying that on the air. No, that's a good thing. Uh, but I, I, I think it's a natural progression for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, what's the first run? Of the book, do you know how many are? Do we yeah. say do we say pressed with books? I guess you say printed. They do sometimes say that printing is a usually. Print I think, run. but I think you better ask the boss. When, oh. when I don't. I don't honestly. Uh, I'm kind of in a, a reverse position from what I used to always be in. Whereas before, bands would be coming in and asking me what's going on with this, what's going on with that, and um, and why isn't my record in such and such store? And oh. I want to try and not be that guy I, now that I'm the artist. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to. I'm just looking on their website now to see if I can uh, pick up anything about the record. There it is. Spy Rock Memories out now. Larry. Oh, and so they say they do say that it's their first book, and it's out today, and it's. It is available in digital version, and there's a hardcover version limited to 200 copies. And uh, that I did know about the, the limited hardcover. That's almost sold out. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they weren't going to do it at first, and it was like they decided at the last minute. And it's it's a thing of beauty. I oh. I really wish we'd had had more of them. Yeah, and uh, so great. So you can get it on the DonGiovanniRecords.com. Playlist, uh, playlist. Sorry, I'm reading the word playlist. I should have said uh, uh, website. Sorry. Yeah, that's the best place to get it, in my opinion. It's available other places and gradually spreading out across the the country. But I think they got the best deal, and you'll get it the fastest. Mm-hmm. And so, um, did you? I mean, you have a obviously a background in journalism in terms of your. Um, you know, the Lookout. Magazine? N- magazine. I didn't know if I should say Zine, and then it had a previous name. It uh, was, was The Lookout. It's. I always called uh, it The Lookout. Mm-hmm. It, um, as I talk about in the book, it started out as the Iron Peak Lookout. Right, and right. It yeah, was just like kind of a newsletter for the, for the mountain community where I lived at the time and mm-hmm. mostly dealt with the... Um, harvest reports and bear invasions and that sort of, of of thing. And then the the hippies got so mad at me that they were felt I was blowing their cover for their work because there was a lot of pot growing in the area. Right. Yeah. They basically came and demanded that I change the name of it, or they would burn my house down. So, and that was a really interesting part of the book for me to to read. Just the whole idea of um, of one just sort of community broadcasting via you know via the written word and uh and how the community saw what was really a concern on your end you know i mean you were um 
you addressed a lot of the the uh, the issues of of people that were growing pot on their properties and the you know the government helicopters kind of flying in and and harassing and or I guess you know busting people, and uh, and that's a, that was a major concern in that neighborhood. So, um, and and we may have sort of jumped ahead a little bit, but so Spy Rock Memories, for me at least, it seems as if the book takes place the entire span of when you lived um, in this one home in the in the remote mountains of Northern California. Uh, actually, even a. a a bit more. It actually spans the whole time that I was involved with the mountain, which actually covers maybe about a year or two before I got before a home you, there, right, and, okay, and yep. then continued after I had mostly left to be in the city and do the record label and mm-hmm. be a big city guy again, but still had you a still connection and still went back. I, right. I, I didn't finally sever my connection to completely till 2004. And that's the uh, and so so it seems like the book is sort of the the main vehicle and the book is really where you were living and what you were writing about and then what happened in your life in relation to which is interesting because you could easily write a book about Lookout Records the story you know and this was kind of um, couched in your living space which which was really cool and the bear invasion just totally freaked me out <laughs> like when you said that you saw an impression on your couch. That, that you were absolutely sure that like a bear slept there. I'm like, that's like Goldilocks reversed. Yeah, it was it was the only funny part of the of the whole harrowing uh yeah. ad- adventure. Um not so not so thrilling were seeing like the claw marks in the screen door. Um, yeah. Where he had tried to get in earlier. That is totally freaky. And so the man across from me has has shot a bear or shot at a bear. At least. That, oh, you kinda, you're talking about me. I thought you were yeah, talking no, about your neighbor. I'm talking about you. <laughs> um, yeah, I probably will never know unless uh, I meet him, him and uh, people in bear heaven if right. I actually hit him. I did not kill the bear. I was prepared to. Right. Um, um, it, it tells a fairly detailed uh, account of mm-hmm. it. Uh, I was just really at my wit's end. Uh, I mean, the bear had demolished my house. It had been made it impossible, f- not just for me, but for for my uh, cats and dogs to to live there because he took all the food and hogged all the space. And right. I never knew when I came back from uh, town if there would be a bear in my house. So yeah. that's that's when uh, the shotgun came into play. Yeah, that's kind of like having you know like a crazy neighbor. Like, you know, you're coming home, you're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to be doing this or wonder if they're going to be I had those too, but I was not allowed to shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, um, uh, the the bear story, among other, you know, really interesting. And, and uh, it just, just talking about, you know, like you were saying, like, I don't know if I'm going to come home and there's going to be a bear in my house. Like, how does that make the trip driving home? Like, I wonder if there's going to be a bear. I mean, that's just not a... It was making me crazy, and I think it was... Uh, well, I give, I give a couple examples where I had run-ins with the cops, which I didn't normally do. Mm. Uh, I had kind of got past the stage of my life where the cops picked on me and stuff. Oh, right, yeah. And, and uh, you were carrying a and gun. And I was carrying the shotgun because I didn't feel safe coming home without a weapon. Sure. Because if, if the bear was already in the house and the gun was in the house, it would not do me a lot <laughs> of... Uh, no. Of good, but uh, I think another thing adding to the whole tension of that time 
was that I was it was kind of a really schizophrenic existence. I was going back and forth that this was in the mid to uh, about 1996. I was already running a multi-million dollar record company that had suddenly exploded the last couple of years because of the the Green Day and pop punk explosion. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, going back to this like primeval struggle with uh, the creatures of the forest that that threatened my very existence. And at some point. Um the it seemed like the trips back to your home on the mountain were more like, you know, a respite, a relaxation. In some ways, it was somewhere else sort of to go um, to unwind in some ways. Although, you know, I mean, you say primeval. I mean, you didn't have electricity there or anything. So it was really like you had your work cut out for you every time you went. But it seemed at some point that really sort of shifted in the book, like how you felt about where you were going to. Like it was kind of like I wanted to get away for a few days. And then it was almost like, well, I had to get home to to feed the the your dogs and cats. And it sort of took on this like and then with the bear thing, it just it it seemed as if that that sort of shifted and then it became more tense every time you were going home yeah it was i think it was partly well let me let me backtrack slightly you 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 commented how how the home uh the house in the mountains seemed to be like the focal point of the whole story and oddly enough you're the second or third person in the last couple of days that's remarked on that i had mm-hmm. not really noticed that so much other than oh interesting other than it's featured on the the cover in a very mm-hmm. in a very nice way yeah um but uh, uh in uh, in a previous interview I, I i responded to that with saying yeah now that you mention it it was it was it was kind of like the the heartbeat in the wilderness like you know, as long as there was firewood and as long as the solar panels cranked out enough power to, to run some 12-volt some lights, even if I was out in a blizzard or a uh, or torrential uh, rainstorm or just all of the other kind of things, I could, I could see that house, like, you know, it's pulsating heart beating in the forest mm-hmm. and I could come back to it and be safe. And that kind of extended all the way down to the city 200 miles away when I was in the midst of all of the turmoil of building this like record label that all of a sudden went just completely bazonkers and you know out of mm. control. I mean, it was just like a little hobby thing that I was doing right. in my bedroom, and all of a sudden there's millions of dollars. It was it was quite a. I, I had never dealt with large amounts of money or responsibility of that kind before. I was kind of a working class kid and and went downhill from there once you know uh, once I left home. So, yeah, it was kind of like uh, somebody re- compared it all, or, uh, to a, a salmon swimming upstream, and I felt like that, always trying to get back up the mountain to right. to my safe home. And right. the more that went on, the more I felt like I was getting pulled away from it and could never get back. And, yeah, that was, that was pretty tense. Yeah, and it seemed as if at some point the house was really no longer safe. Like you, there, there are times where you look at it and you're like, oh, I saw how, you know, it went into disrepair and things that I wasn't keeping up with. And you were pulled by the label, you know. You can't really live in a uh, an environment like that if you're not there most of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, nature is too too strong. And oh, too I insistent. can imagine. It will have its way. Yeah. The, the sun beats down, the, the wind blows, the... The, the rains come and we used to get like 100 and 120 inches of rain a, a year and uh, hmm. there's floods there's I mean it basically you always got to be doing little repairs and upkeeps or, right. or else yeah a lot of dedication yeah 
and uh, and of and of course, you know, in the meantime, uh, Larry is living in this house that, in and of itself, is really a, a a project. And you know, like you said, a whole lot of upkeep. And like you said, you you know, you started Lookout Records. Um, you had a band that that I was I was I didn't realize that your that the Lookouts started really in your home there on the mountain. I really assumed that I was going to get to a page and be like, okay. And so he discovered these people, you know, in Berkeley or in San Francisco. And I just loved the fact that they were like neighborhood quote neighborhood kids. No, know? it was the weirdest, most <laughs> convoluted uh, story or uh, of of starting a punk rock band, I think, because I had been trying to have a band in, mm-hmm. the, in the city for years and just failing miserably. I mean, I, and this was at the time when the, the scene in San Francisco and Berkeley and the whole Bay Area was just, you know, um, amazing. There were shows every night, several shows every night of the week. And I could not find three people to, to play with. And then I, I, sa- I finally kind of said, well, I give give up. I didn't really give up, but I kind of, you know, knew that you don't go into the middle of the wilderness <laughs> with no electricity and no telephones and start a punk rock band. Well, and who knew? Yeah, and, uh, you know, we ended up with the, the, the 14-year-old son of the guy who built my house and the 12-year-old son of my nearest neighbor a mile down the road. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we were... Uh, creating a lot of havoc on the mountain. Uh, they were they were not familiar with punk rock. Most of them up there. In fact, they did not have a, a very high opinion of it at all. Yeah, the uh, the stories about like your first couple gigs and people just sort of looking and and you know I mean they they do bring me back to the old days of really when and when punk wasn't accepted and and all that. And I could just imagine like the cross-eyed looks and and going through that. But there's I mean, but you really accomplished so much. You know, and and from that, especially from that point of view, like putting together a band there, like on the side of this, you know, like my mind, like what I imagined in terms of like in reading the book and what I visually saw, like I saw this like huge mountain and your house is like halfway up and like you've got a band up there. It was actually know. about three quarters. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, but just the... Um, 3,000 feet, the mountain was a little over 4,000. Yeah. And yet there's a band playing up there. You know. uh, on our uh, second album that we put out, we have the, the artist did a nice little thing where we're plugged into a pine tree. Uh, there's a, it's it's uh, actually r- right there. You got there your hand is. on it. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, ske- she sketched us uh, with. Uh, it's, I think it's on the front cover near up near the top. Oh, of there the you mountain. are. Yeah. Yes. I'm looking. At it's it's the Lookout Spy Rock Road record folks for those of you following along at oh home. sorry i forgot people couldn't look at us uh, yeah. <laughs> um we're not on webcam are we no we're not um yeah we're actually were i was very proud in fact uh, um, that we were a solar powered band for the first few years yeah of, of our existence i'm um, sure that that's historical i don't know i i used to brag about it but who knows i mean it's a big world yeah and i was and also the, i bragged that the lookout was the, the solar powered zine because mm-hmm. again i I got myself an, uh, before computers, of course. Uh, right. I got an electric typewriter powered by solar panels, and, and actually, my first primitive uh, Macintosh w- worked up there too. That we had enough solar power to to get that going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, briefly, just um, how quickly did things really start rolling for the label? 
I mean, it seemed as if you put out four seven inches in a really short period of time. All at once. Yeah, yeah. But that it, it had a little bit more of a just gestation period. Uh, the, the Lookouts, uh, very prematurely, I must add, put out our first album in the spring of 1987, almost a year earlier, and we'd recorded it in 86. We were way too, way too not ready. To, mm. um, but uh, we did it, and then it kind of just sat there. But I had learned a little bit about the mechanisms of doing a record label. Right, like how long the pressing takes, how long you would yeah, need to and who, get who, from recording. Who did all the, the who the, the pressing plant to go to was, who was mm-hmm. the, the right mastering engineer, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I had uh, made friends with uh, a fellow called David Hayes, who who had similar interests and was also working at, to help build Gilman Street, which was getting ready to open at that time. Yeah. And um, so we often traded ideas and said, oh, maybe it would be cool to put out some records. And it all kind of happened spontaneously in the fall of 87, where, where I just, uh, as I recount in the book, say I, I saw Operation Ivy for the first time and just without meaning to just said, hey, do you want to make a record? I, I just like it just came out of my mouth without thinking, uh, as did a lot of things I said in those days and probably today, too. But um, it just I wanted to say, hey, that was really good. And instead, I said, you guys want to make a record? And, mm. and they were like, yeah. And the next thing I knew, I'd asked a couple other bands and David said, uh, do you know what you're doing? And I, I said, well, let's do it together. And because he wanted he had a band he wanted to put a record out by. So we joined joined forces. And about three months later, four months later, uh, we put out the first four seven inches. Uh, in the meantime, David had put together something you probably have heard of called Turn It Around, which is a, a double seven-inch compilation of all the Gilman bands. Mm. It was a benefit for, for Gilman itself, but also kind of a way of letting the world know about this amazing new scene, scene that yeah. had suddenly sprung up around Gilman. I mean, it opened on New Year's Eve uh, 30, uh, 86, and then all through 87, it was just... It's kind. I always like to describe it like that... Uh, that thing of if you build it, they will come. Right. Or I, in college, I read this uh, thing, this theory called free spaces, whereas if you have like marginal movements like uh, the civil rights movement or the women's movement, they had to first have some place out of the view of the mainstream where they could hang out. Oh. Like in the civil rights movement, it was the, the black churches. In the case mm-hmm. of the, the women's movement, it was, of all things, the temperance mo- movement in the 19th century. Right. It was the one place they could do just hang out and do their stuff without interference from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's where great movements flourished. And this was kind of what happened at, at Gilman. I mean, the, the scene was kind of moribund in the in the Bay Area by that time, thanks to, to violence and uh, all sorts of stuff, drugs. And suddenly there was this kind of pretty healthy, wholesome environment. And these all these young kids came there and saw whoa you mean they just let you get up on stage and play i'm starting a band too mm-hmm. and, and just like that bands came out of everywhere it was like really inspiring yeah it must have been an amazing time you know i mean i know what it was like on this side of the states but um and, and just for you to be motivated enough to put out to start a label because you wanted a band to have a record I mean, that's sort of how it sounds like you like Operation Ivory was really like if nobody had struck you that much, like I really want to do this. Like like if um, 
guess what I'm trying to say is that it seems as if you really started the label because somebody was so good you wanted them to have a record. It wasn't just somebody. I had already been kicking around the idea of putting out a record for Isocracy. Mm. They were the, the first Gilman superstars, they high school kids, again, who just created this ridiculous uh, concept. Every time they played a show, they would bring all of the, the whatever trash or commercial detritus they could find on the way and then throw it at the audience and the oh. audience would throw it back at them. It was very, very, very chaotic. But people loved them. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they went from being like these really timid high school kids to being these flamboyant show, show people. And for the first half of the first year of Gilman, they were the superstars. Then Operation Ivy came along and suddenly, like, these guys are not only exciting, they know how to play instruments and everything. And uh, But my, my concept was not really so much just to sh do it for any one band, but to, to document that, that whole scene, to mm -hmm. which is actually what Don Giovanni always says they want to do. That's what they're here for, is to document the scene of today in, in this area. Right. And one of the reasons I admire them. Uh, I, I felt, you know, I, of, I back in the heyday of Lookout, I often used to get interviewed for magazines and other media, and they'd always ask me, why did you start a label? And the, the, the kind of glib but very accurate answer was that at that time, t t nothing on the radio or nothing in the stores was as good as what I was hearing at Gilman Street and being made by my friends who had bands. Mm. And if, if somebody did not record it and put it out there, it might never get heard. Yeah, yeah. And so you're the one. Well, it could have been someone else, but, well, and I got to give credit to David Hayes because he was right there for the first couple of years too. And he created a lot of uh, invaluable made a lot of invaluable contributions to the label, including a lot of the, the most memorable graphics, like the, the smiley face lookout thing. And oh, right. A lot of the logos for a lot of the bands were his creation. And he was organized in a way that I was not. And, and when he decided to leave the label, I had to have a real crash course in figuring out how to structure things. Oh, wow. And so you say that that was his contribution and was yours more the vision or what would you say that you're, I mean, if you divided up duties and you said, oh, David, if, so, if I walked into the office, you know, office? during those days, well, in, <laughs> let's, in, let's not get carried in, away into <laughs> where you conducted business from where I'm almost going to raise my eyebrows at business. But <laughs> um, yeah, and you said this is David and he does blah, blah, blah. And I do. What would you say? I was just going to note that our, our first year's accounting was quite literally done on the back of an envelope in, mm -hmm. in his handwriting. Um, but um, that was, yeah, he kept track of the, uh, of the, s how many copies of, of, uh, of a record a band had gotten, stuff like that. But mostly he, he created the really iconic kind of ads and images. Mm -hmm. Like the very first uh, ad we ever put out in Maximum Rock and Roll was, it, I can't remember what the picture was, but he created it and it said, nobody buys seven inch records anymore, which was kind of true at the time. So we put out four of them. Mm. And uh, that was the kind of thing that he would do every month. So you'd come up with some kind of, it, it really resonated with the, uh, with the kids. And when I say kids, I mean literally kids. Punk by that time had kind of become the property of uh, sort of slightly older, slightly more embittered and hardened kind of guys who just wanted to be real tough and mosh around and uh, 
you know, it, it was oh, yeah. it had become a character of its caricature of itself, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the kids who really responded to our early stuff were like maybe fourteen to sixteen year olds who, you know, wanted their own kind of punk rock, you know, a little bit happier and more upbeat and creative and uh, fun, whereas well, something that they'd like to join in on. Yeah, not their not their big brother's punk rock, which was by that time very very grim. You had to always look really sullen and be down and, and out tough. and uh, <laughs> miserable. Yeah. Yeah, the um, so the rapid expansion of the label happened, I I I'm guessing directly because of the popularity of, of Green Day. No, um, no, it it, or it that's when it uh, I've used the word before, but exploded is probably the only one strong enough. But mm-hmm. it, the label had been growing rapidly long before that. It 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 roughly doubled at least every every year, and then it increased by a factor of 10 once once Green Day went to the major label and made it big. But we were already a, a quite a, a big label uh, by indie standards be- mm-hmm. even before that happened. And, and until uh, 94, it was Operation Ivy was the main driver of it. Right. Although uh, starting in 91, Screeching Weasel became a big factor too. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one point, it was kind of... Uh, I mean, Operation Ivy was maybe half of our sales, and and then Green Day, and then Screeching Weasel, and then it reversed for for a few years. Uh, Green Day was like eighty percent, and then mm. it settled down again. And believe it or not, by the late nineties, Operation Ivy had become the number one seller again. Wow! Yeah, it's it's weird because the uh, in the year that the Operation Ivy album came out in nineteen eighty nine. They broke up like basically the month that it came out. Never played another show. Never toured. Never did any promo. Right. And, and that year, it sold two thousand copies, vinyl and cassette only. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year and a half later, I started saying we need to reissue it on CD because that's what everybody listens to now. And everybody's saying, "No, nah, no, nah, everybody's already got it that wants it," including our distributor, Ruth Schwartz. It. She said, no, who's going to buy it now? Like they, They've been broken up two years by the time it comes out. And the band themselves, I couldn't, it took me a long time to persuade them. That, Who else is going to want our record? So basically it, it took that long. When it finally came out, it sold like 5,000 copies the first day. And, wow. And then that was 1991. By 1995, when the things really went crazy, it was selling over 2,000 copies a week. In really? other words, as many as it was selling, it sold the whole first year. It yeah. was selling every week. Wow. And this for a band that had toured, toured only one. Yeah, were gone by that time many years and had yeah. done one tour of six weeks uh, and then broken up. Wow, that's remarkable. I had no idea. It's I, I one of my, I kind of, this is probably immature of me, but one of my quiet satisfactions is I got into a, a really almost screaming argument at Mordam. There was a good friend of mine called Tommy Strange that kind of ran the warehouse there. And way back in 88, I said to him, you know, Operation Ivy, they're going to be one of those bands like Minor Threat or the Dead Kennedys that's just going to go on forever and be bigger and bigger as the years go by. And he just yelled so loud, hey, listen to everybody, listen to what Larry said. That's a, you ever hear anything so stupid? He insisted on walking all around the whole warehouse and repeating it to everybody to try and get them to laugh at me. Mm. And, well, I don't know where Tommy is today, but I guess, well. That's interesting. It, 
And that's just funny what humans do to try to get other people to agree with their, <laughs> their <laughs> point of view. Because neither one of you knew if you were right. You had I, an opinion I, and he had an I opinion. I had no idea. And, yeah. um, and yet I did have, I mean, people often ask me, how did you pick these bands? Because I, uh, by standards of the of the mainstream record industry, I guess I get a, had a pretty good track record. I mean, very few bands ever failed in the sense of lost any significant amount of money and, right. and a number of them went on to have a lot of success I did have some kind of gut instinct mm. uh, especially about both Operation Ivy and Green Day I mean you gotta put it in perspective in 1988 or ni- uh, 89 my, the, uh, my idea our idea of something big was hey if we could sell maybe a couple thousand records like wow that would be amazing yeah, and I and people laughed at me when I said those bands could, mm-hmm. but I I kind of in the back of my mind dared to hope that yeah it could be it could go a lot farther and I think that goes back to, to my earliest inspirations as a teenager growing up in Detroit because uh, I had watched like people from an even more marginal culture like from the projects of of, of Detroit. African-Americans who at that time, I mean, Detroit was still, even though it was in the north, it was basically a segregated city in many mm. respects. Like, And they, having not been able to get their music heard, or even if they did get it heard, they didn't get paid for it, a bunch of them, st- you know, they started their own, their own record label. Sure. And suddenly, instead of, always before it had been, we got to wait for the Mr. Big Talent Scout from Hollywood or New York City to come in and bestow the mantle of importance on mm, us. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, like, these these uh, working class um, people from Detroit said, no, we're going to do it ourselves. And they were, the, you know, within a couple of years, they were, quote, unquote, the sound of young America. I mean, everybody in America and eventually the world was, like, looking to Detroit and saying, gosh, those guys can do something besides build ugly cars. <laughs> and, you know, following, you know, shortly upon that, like around the time I was finishing high school, the, you know, the whole lot of garage bands grew up in my neighborhood, and one of them was the MC5, who didn't have a, they had, they had a, a lot of critical attention in the 60s. They didn't sell a lot of records, mm-hmm. but they're still revered to this day, and they've, oh, sure. they've, they've shaped and influenced almost everything that has come since, and they were just the, the kids down the block, right. you know, that were practicing in a garage, and the first time I saw them was playing in a battle of the bands on the on the tennis court in Champaign Park, and they didn't wow. even win. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. Yet, I mean, you know, the label, and, and you're right, I mean, there's a lot of known bands that were on the lookout roster, and, uh, Myself, I've never been able to pick out bands like early on, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, that band's okay. And then, you know, later they're huge or whatever. Um, But but um, and I do see that if you look at that roster, that there's a lot of bands who have done very, very well and that, you know, your gut feelings might be very, uh, very, very good, you know, just. Well, they worked for a while. I, I'm not sure I would try to farm myself out today and promise somebody I could make them a star. But right. it, it, at that time, I seemed to be in uh, in tune with the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you were actually molding the times, too. I mean, it was your label, so it was kind of... That's know. very flattering. I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's if that's true or not. Well, I mean, in some ways, you know, it's your choice to put out a record and... and 
how many bands did you not put out records by? Oh, I mean, lots. I'm and sure some, some, I re- some I regret, uh, others I, I don't regret at all. But yeah. there, there did come a tipping point where I began to realize that just by the fact of putting out a band, I could make them... Uh, Lookout had become important enough oh, sure. that if I just said I had become Mr. Hollywood Talent Scout in a, in a, in a small sense that mm-hmm. if I put out a band, people would at least pay attention. They wouldn't necessarily. Right, because you endorse the band more or less. It's like, you, you know, we I mean, as a you know radio person and as a record buying consumer for years. There are certain labels, you know, like Discord, like Lookout. You just, oh, the new record on Lookout. Like, you know, it, there becomes a time where the conversation in the record store is, I'll just buy the new their new release because I trust the label. So yeah. many people have told me that about Lookout, and it's why it was a little bit traumatic when after I left the label, um, the, the new owners kind of shifted course mm-hmm. fairly significantly to where everybody started asking me, like, what's going on? I, I bought... I bought these records because it said Lookout on it, and it's like not at all what I was expecting or wanted. Right. And, but you know, it was I had no, I had no control over it. Did you did you keep an eye on what the label was doing, sort of from afar after you separated from it? I did, but not, not too close of an eye because it became uh, kind of discomforting. Hmm. I had, uh, I think I mentioned this in the book, I had, I, uh, maybe I didn't, uh, I had this vision that I would kind of be the elder statesman, even though it was no longer my label, I just basically handed it over to the to the younger people who'd been working there, mm-hmm. uh, but that I'd be like the kind of guy they would call up and say, oh, well, we, how do we deal with this, you know, how did you deal with this, and, hmm. um, or do you know any good bands, or stuff like that, um, or in what would have been really helpful was like helping to be an intermediary with the old bands that I had signed. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, many of whom felt left out mm-hmm. or, or ignored by the new management. But uh, um, as it happened, um, I became quickly began to feel like a second, I don't know, you know, third wheel. I mean, I'd come by the office and everybody was busy doing their stuff and eventually it's you know, it became obvious that there was no longer a role for me there, and mm. I, I moved to England. Um, you know, I still by by now we had the internet, and you know I could keep in touch. But they were doing stuff that didn't really interest me. Then I didn't really pay attention until, or t- uh, too much attention anymore, until people started complaining that the bands were no longer getting paid, and that mm. that really upset me. And I, I tried to investigate and got nowhere. And um, right. Well, that would be hard to do if you're no longer, you know, involved. Well, I yeah, but I was I was friends with uh, especially uh, Chris, who he'd worked with me from very near the beginning, and yeah. he he was the new uh, president and CEO of the label. So, I would I would call him up and say, "Hey, such and such band says they haven't got paid," and he'd say, "Oh yeah, we're working on it," and as about you know as much. As much as I could do, but I, right. it was it was hard because uh, these bands, I, a lot of them, we we signed quote unquote without even a contract or anything. I just basically said, "You want to make a record?" And they said, "Yeah, we 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 like you, Larry. We'll we're happy to work with you." And mm-hmm. um, and and they kind of transferred that loyalty to the to the new management. But unfortunately, um, well, and you can't out. yeah, and you can't vouch for them either. 
you know, and once you're out of the picture, you really. I honestly you know, thought tough. that things would keep going the way they had forever because, th- mm. you know, it was it was I don't I don't want to say it was a smoothly oiled machine because there you know I was learning as I went along too in structuring it, but um, they had, you know, an, an amazing cat back catalog that was bringing in lots of money. They had all the resources, the distribution, everything to to run a great label basically mm-hmm. forever. Um, you know, f- probably the the biggest single problem was that they kind of said, "Oh no, now let's use this influence to make this other kind of band popular." And it doesn't always work that way, as the right. major labels know. I mean, right. about three ninety, eighty to ninety percent of what the major labels put out flops, and right. they, they make it all back. Right, they write it on, off on, on on one one or two big bands. Mm-hmm. When indie labels try to do that scenario, it, it doesn't work unless they unless they've got millions and millions of dollars to 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 burn through on right, the way. Right to cushion them, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we we had a good cushion, but not 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 that kind of cushion. Right. What was your um your thought when the label did finally end? It was it was past time. It was uh, it was obviously sad in a lot of media. Um, contacted me for comments and I said a couple of somewhat intemperate things which I regret but even my own in fact my own my own mother heard me on the radio out in California and mm. said that that was really a little bit you were so vindictive and I mm. I said mom it's you mean vindictive and she said I meant what I said <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I said that it was kind of past time uh, it was it was, it was it was kind of if you uh, like having a an elderly or relative or friend who has been through suffered with an illness for a really mm. long time when they finally pass away you say well it's we're all in a better place now yeah 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 that's that's a bit um, <laughs> a bit morbid but uh well you know and, and it's it, i mean Everything is a journey, whether it's a person's life a story or if it's a business, you know, whatever. And uh, and you saw it, uh, you know, sort of sort of shift and then maybe become less vital, you know, to the scene that you yeah established. I'm, I'm not sure that even if it still was thriving today, doing the same kind of music it always did, I, if it would be thriving, because of course styles right, and tastes change. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would be that awesome anyway. I, 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 one of the reasons I left was because I had gotten really burnt on sitting there at a desk as opposed to going out and discovering bands and doing all sorts of exciting new stuff. It, was, it had become a routine. Mm-hmm. And I was always the, the guy who wanted to go out and have new adventures, not the guy who wanted to turn the adventures into you know, a, a day-to-day, nine-to-five job. And so that, that part I was not good at. And yeah. And so it's probably, even though it didn't have a happy ending, maybe it w- I had to leave when I did because I was going crazy. For the interests of everybody else involved, I probably should have taken a little bit longer and made a better transition. Or hmm. for the sake, you know, I've, I've often thought I probably should have just sold it to a bigger company who could have managed it. Ah, uh, right. Um, but I didn't want to because punks didn't do that. Right. And so, you right. know, in the course, as a result, you know, I kind of threw away lots and lots of money that I could have gotten and mm-hmm. unfortunately also threw away all of the money that other people should have gotten and so that was kind of well and we make we make choices we live and learn uh, yeah hopefully absolutely yeah yeah and uh, and so but but 
you know, when you say it becomes it becomes a routine, it becomes, you know, this. I mean, your book is all about adventure. Like, there's so much stuff in your book. It's like just even, you know, I'm sure that cooking breakfast was an adventure. Like, just in terms <laughs> of, you know, the house and all that. So I really can get from you that that's what your life is about. Like, it's about, you know, variety and and and. And, you know, getting something out of this experience and getting something out of that experience. There's n- there's I'm trying n- to remember exactly how cooking, cooking uh, breakfast could have been an adventure provided that the, the bear didn't uh, turn up or the... Well, that's the, it. The, I mean, the, the wood stove didn't catch on, or the chimney didn't catch on fire, or a sudden storm didn't come up and blow the roof off. Right, and 99% of the population of the world doesn't have those three things to think about when they're cooking breakfast. Like... Okay, check for the bear, check for the fire, check, you know, I mean, there's, most people just get up and are still cooking their breakfast and they're still comatose and they're eating their breakfast and they're still comatose and they're going to work and they're still comatose, you know, so there's, I mean, who you are as a person, it strikes me that you're just very much always, always looking and always kind of looking what's next for you, which is a really great way to, to be able to look at life. Well, one of I think one of the subtexts of the of the book, although I don't know that I ever say it outright, but was that th- without all of this experience of learning to live on the land mm-hmm. and in the wilderness and, and in the, the far flung community that dwelt there, without that experience I, I don't think I could ever have uh built a label or a magazine or a band or done any of that stuff. I was too much of a mess when I first went there. I was like mm. completely decadent and degenerate kind of burnout mm-hmm. who uh, went to the country, as I say, to, to in search of something real. Yeah. And it, 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 got, it got pretty real, but it also... <laughs> it did. And I, you know, as, as you'll know, if you, since you've read it, uh, I mean, I ran into some pretty harsh encounters and alienated a lot of people but gradually slowly but surely by I learned to become part of a community Mm -hmm. and my magazine was part of that it it started out with everybody wanting to burn my house down and and beat me up and uh ended up with a you know thousands of people reading it and kind of and and then uh you know people got together started a community radio station and that was such a that was amazing just the, how it transformed the isolation you know all of a sudden these mountains like 50 100 miles apart where you couldn't even see any sign of human habitation but all of a sudden because of this radio station they were connected yeah you people could call in and say oh i lost my dog or uh there's there's there was a bear sighting last night or the hell here comes the helicopters on such and such mountain and right um and it was like you know, in the same way that I earlier described my house as being the heartbeat of my personal universe, the, that, that radio station became the heartbeat of an entire hundreds of square mile wilderness community. Mm. It's still there today. It's a, uh, thriving. It's a, it's a, it was an amazing experience to be part of that. Do you ever go back? Do you have relatives who still live on the mountain? I do. My sister still lives mm-hmm. uh, up there. And uh, I don't get there often. I will be going up there at the end of this month to uh, present the book at a few local bookstores and oh, uh, hopefully on the, the local, on KMUD, the local radio station. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, planning like a book tour at all? I, I don't want to sort of glorify it into that. Everybody keeps trying to tell me that I'm going on a tour. Um, well. It's not, I, I when I first realized the book was going to be published, I did have this 
romantic fantasy of uh, how I was going to go all around the country for the next nine months and stopping at every town and going to the bookstore. That has not materialized, and I'm not sure I have the ambition or uh, patience for it. But my friend John Ginoli, who was the guitarist and singer in Pansy Division, wrote a book and basically did that. He just left his job and took nine months and traveled around the country selling his book hmm. and that seemed so much fun like it's, it seemed way better than being on tour with a band because there it's always you got to go to the venue set up equipment sound check and then just hang around waiting to play and then right. with a book it just seemed oh you just got to go there you know, all you got to do is a you got, all you got is a bag of books and you right. go there and talk for an hour and then go explore and mm -hmm. move on to the next town yeah but it, that's probably a bit of a romantic fantasy I'm I'm pretty excited about going though to what we call the or people call the Emerald Triangle, which is the area where uh, the book is set, mm -hmm. and to revisit some of those communities. It's 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 a very different place today, and I'm I've been back a few times. It's not quite as wholesome or welcoming in some ways as it once was, but that might be just because I'm not there regularly. But the the drug trade has greatly expanded since the uh, time I was there it was the the marijuana trade in those days was very much a mom and pop kind of thing very much like family farm model and right um since that time has become almost like corporate agribusiness where you have like lots of uh migrant laborers and lots of guards with shotguns and wow. there's a, quite uh, an amazing uh, murder rate nowadays Ooh. up there would probably would would surpass easily surpass newark wow uh, i mean if you consider the number of people that live there mm. wow yeah big big changes um <laughs> we've been talking for a really long time yeah and, sorry and about that no 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 don't be <laughs> sorry there's there's obviously a lot to talk about and and larry's book is spy rock memories and the don giovanni label is a. Uh, is putting it out and is carrying it, and I'll put links up um, on the playlist to that. Um, I'd like to get into your playlist because you did come here prepared, very well prepared. I have to say, and I want to thank Larry for coming here with you know two two copies of the CD and the the printed out playlist. And I really had to do almost nothing, so thank you for that because sometimes I am running around up until the last second trying to to get things together for a, a guest who may not be as as uh, as, as together as, as my, my guest today. So um, what do you want to play next, and what do you want to say about it? Uh, well, gosh, that's a tough one. I, um, I, uh, we did talk a lot longer than I had expected. I know. We could have put some of this music in, like, ping, ping, ping. Yeah, that was know. my original idea, was that <laughs> I would, like, play a song or two and say, well, that's what this is about. And, uh, right. And I, st I had a couple of songs that start. I mentioned when we were talking about the, the Detroit connection and what I grew up with, Mo Motown and uh, the MC5. Yeah. And then after that was uh, a couple of the early uh, Lookouts songs that dealt specifically with our, our environment. And actually, the first one is not a Lookouts song. It was by the Simple Tones from Southern California, but we had adopted the lyrics uh, for... Uh, for our specific location uh, and mm -hmm. change it to Mendocino, which is Mendocino County where we lived. And it features a a 12-year-old Trey Cool yes. uh, singing in, in a soprano voice uh, on oh. the harmonies. And, um, you know, that might be a good place to start. Okay. So um, we're going to start with... California. It's 
California Mendocino, as we called it. And uh, so my guest is Larry Livermore, and uh, we are WFMU. The, the, uh, the first song on his playlist is going to be The Lookout, which, of course, was your band. And um, this is called Mendocino Homeland. No, no, Cal- no. Cal- the one before it. The one before it. Oh, 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 got it. Okay. Very good. Sorry. California. Perfect. All right. Stay tuned. We are WFMU. So high, Ooh, 
And we have returned. My guest is Larry Livermore. We are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, online at WFMU.org and in Rockland County at 91.9 FM. So there you go. MC5, little little Detroit in there. Um, yeah, I... I uh kind of got it all backwards in a, in a sense. I, I had a sudden uh, brain freeze the way I used to when I, in my own DJ days many years ago, uh, been 20 plus years ago now, but uh, I originally intended to play the second two songs first to sort of say this is Detroit where I came from in the, mm-hmm. in the 60s that really shaped my ideas about what it was like to be involved with music and record labels and subcultures and everything. Yeah. And then some, somehow I said, oh, let's play the Lookouts uh, California song. Well, I, w- I just wouldn't let you stop talking. I think that that was the... Uh, that, that Lookouts uh, <laughs> song, actually, we recorded. Uh, it was our first demo tape in 1985 <laughs> when we had been a band for less than six months. And mm-hmm. Trey had been... I mean, Trey had never played drums before. Um, you'll recognize his, hopefully, his uh, soprano voice singing the backups on there. He was 12 years old at the time. And... And I thought, what's the connection between that and uh, the Stevie Wonder song? And they were, oh, wow, they 12 were both years 12 years old and both had beautiful crystal clear sopranos. Uh, that Stevie Wonder song was uh, the very first Stevie Wonder song I ever heard. Most people haven't even don't even know it. Yeah, I didn't know it. Yeah. It didn't get to number one. It was the one before Fingertips. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to hear it while I was walking around on my paper route uh, when I was in high school. and. Uh, I, that's the one I love the most and thinks the best he ever did. But that was like, I was like, I was probably 14 or 15 at the time. And I'm like, that 12 year old can have like a, a record. What, some, what's going on? I, I got to rethink my priorities. Oh, interesting. So that kind of gave you a, the bug in terms of you can do it. Yeah, interesting. It took me, it took me uh, a couple more decades to figure it out. Cause in the ab- I was like, there was bands go springing up all around and I never had the nerve to try and be in one. I, I was kind of still in this thing like that was something like special people did. People right. with, And I could like hang around bands and watch them and carry their equipment and stuff. But it was um, the 80s before I felt like, wait a minute, why can't I do it too? Right, right. Well, you know, and a lot of people don't ever get to that. Well, point. it was kind of it was kind of nutty to at my age in the '80s to start saying, "Oh, I'm going to start a punk rock band," and even nuttier that it. A lot of my original ideas were kind of like I'm going to sing about really militantly thrashy uh, political stuff, I'm, and it was only years later I said, "Oh, wait a minute, we were just trying to be another Dead Kennedys, but we've already got a Dead Kennedys, and mm-hmm. they're pretty good at it, and we weren't." Uh, well, and and you were a journalist, and you were writing about a lot of a lot of issues, a lot of social, you know, type issues that were happening in your your area. So I think that was natural for you. Yeah, a lot of my early uh, lookouts songwriting was basically an attempt to write diatribes and fit them to some kind of uh, rudimentary music. It wasn't until we started uh, I, coming trying to come up with tunes first, and then putting lyrics to it that we came up with some good songs the one that you played is not typical of our early stuff because somebody else wrote it uh, mm-hmm. a very great southern california band called the simple tones um, they were they were amazed that th- when they heard that song many years later it uh, <laughs> uh mtv did or vh1 or one of those networks did a story about green day where they um went back and uh, they played that song to show where where Trey had come from. Oh, wow. And uh, 
the Simple Tones got some some money and recognition out of, and they're like, "What are we doing on MTV?" <laughs> it's like, "What's oh, our song doing on MTV?" That's rather funny. Wow, um, that's a very interesting connection. Because I, I first heard that song in like '79 or something when I got the Beach Boulevard compilation. Mm-hmm. When, when I was going run around buying every new punk and new wave record because I wanted to be with the new scene. Mm-hmm. Well, and there was a new scene. Yeah. Yeah, but by like, it had. I, as as another band from that scene said, the scene by that by the late '80s, the scene had died away. I hadn't got a steady job or a place to stay. I, you know, the, the Agent Orange song. Yeah. And that's kind of what it felt like. So yeah, we felt like we had to start all over. And you know, on the mountain, I was like introducing these kids to, to sort of the classics, I guess. Mm-hmm. What was the classics to me from the '70s? Um, and then they took it from there. It was amazing. Like the the, four, the twelve year old and the fourteen year old, within a couple of years, not only were they better musicians than me, they were writing great songs themselves. And Trey went from like never having touched a drum in his life. Within two years, he was given drum lessons and playing in a jazz orchestra. And wow! And now, of course, depending on your personal preferences, he's probably one of the best drummers in the world. Certainly in the in the, in the rock and roll business, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's just. You know, when I go see him at a big arena show, and I, I, I notice my eyes still pop out of my head sometimes to think, my God, is he really playing that? I mean, that, that, that kid, that chaotic kid. Yeah, that, yeah. That wouldn't sit still or shut up. It is, it is kind of amazing. Um, did you, um, have you gone further? Are you, aside from the book, well, you know, I did want to ask you, did you, as a journalist, did you always keep your own personal journals like did this book come out of things that you wrote down over time or did you set out to just write the book like sit down and write spiral, Boy, uh, yeah spiral. i've been i've been asked that too uh, in fact that one's a very popular question people want to know how do you remember all that stuff yeah that's kind of what i was no i didn't keep journals the closest thing to a journal that i i kept in those days was the magazine mm-hmm. and a lot of it did have a lot of personal content like if i was brokenhearted or uh or bored or depressed i would write about it in the magazine i didn't just write about about bears and new punk records i right. i wrote about anything i felt like because mm-hmm. i basically created all the content myself uh sometimes up to 40 pages an issue um and most of it, what I what I've, I realized when I was answering that question was the reason that I remember so much detail, I think, is that when you're in the middle of the wilderness all by yourself and sometimes don't see another person for days at a time, um, you become very conscious of everything around you. And, you know, if, if a, a tree has lost some of its leaves or if uh, the wind has blown something out of place and you walk out you oh that, that's not where it was before or if you have an important conversation with a neighbor and you notice that the sky you know it's a really gloomy conversation and a really gloomy day or mm. conversely it's a unusually bright and sunny day for such a, a dark conversation you notice these things uh, yeah. in the same way that i mean i know um if i walk out at night i would see more stars than probably most human beings will ever see right. because there, there's no, there was no light. I mean, right. there was no human light visible as far as the eye could see in any direction. And you could see everything, the, all the colors of mm. the stars. I, I remark on my first time up there when I had to find my way back down the mountain at night in pitch black with no moon, nothing. And, and I, I, I said as a, within a couple of years I would be able to do that 
effortlessly just move through the forest in, in complete dark, as probably the native peoples had done for centuries. But at first, it was just like terror. Mm. Such an amazing experience. Just just even you recounting that, you know. Um, um, so how long did it take to actually write the book? It started out as a newspaper article for for our one of the local papers up there. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the only papers that had been kind of receptive to me all along. And the editor kept bugging me. You know, you got to write something about Spyrock, and he meant like a maybe a three thousand word single article and by the time I had written 3,000 words it was not even the first chapter mm. so it he, he started serializing it and then oh. Joe from Don Giovanni said that's got to be a book and that's where it went from there it, um, the actual first writing of it started in the summer of 2009 uh, it was more or less finished about a year and a half ago and then anybody who wants to be a writer out there I don't know if this is true for everybody but for me and for most writers I know the editing and the rewriting takes a lot longer than the actual writing mm. so over a year uh, I and Zach from uh, Don Giovanni who's an editor in, in his day life mm -hmm. um, we went back and forth over and over it again polishing rewriting and then uh, my friend Aaron Comet Bus who's pretty great right I mean one of the great writers himself uh, was kind enough to go over it again with me and so it took a while, yeah, a lot longer than I had hoped. I I'd expected to have another book out by now. Ah, and are you working on something I'm else? I'm working on two other books, which is insane. You're not supposed. To, I don't think you're supposed to do that. Well, for somebody who is working a record label, living in the wilderness, and putting out a magazine, also, oh, and at one point being a full-time student at uh, right at Berkeley, yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's that was, I mean, that was insane sounds like it's the the prescription of the day for you. Honestly, so. um. I, I was at one time I was certified by the government, but that was a long time <laughs> ago. Um, yeah, I, most of the time I'm lazy, but every once in a while I get this sudden burst of activity and get a lot done. Did you ever feel that doing all that stuff at once um, maybe hindered you from focusing on one or the other more than you would um, um, that more that you would than you would like to? Um, I yeah, I guess I've. I've thought about that, and what I always come back to is that, you know, I can't, I don't seem to be one of those kind of people who can just, like, really focus and arrange things and mm -hmm. say, okay, from 1245 until 130, I'm going to do this, and then, right. um, you know, my life has tended to, to be chaotic, probably a bit more so than I, I would have been ideal, and, and yet... One of the things I learned from living in nature is you, you go with the flow, the, like what the Chinese call the Tao. You, mm -hmm. you, the water finds its way down the mountain one way or another. You're not going to stop it. It's right. going to get there. And you, you try to build a dam, and it'll go around it or through it. It'll make a Grand Canyon if it has to. Right. And that's, I think, kind of how, how one's life goes, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I'm, it's not a crying over spilled milk, but it's just sort of if you look at your life and— and and see if there was something that you would have liked to have spent more time doing. Millions of things, but yeah. you know, I've been so incredibly blessed and fortunate in so many ways to the experiences that I've been able to to have, to the things I've been able to witness. I mean, in, in time periods long before the period covered by the book as well, and and since. 
So, uh, you know, I got I got no complaints. I mean, it would be really <laughs> idiotic of me to complain about anything in my life. Yeah. It's, it's been it's been an amazing adventure so far. I hope it will continue. Mm-hmm. The the other two books that you're working on, are they similar? Um, they're both memoirs, uh, but the focus is considerably different. Uh, one of them is basically what what happens next you know with a way you know sort of the urban version of spy rock you know oh. it, some of it overlaps most of it is to do with uh with lookout and the mm-hmm. and the the space scene and the bands and stuff the other is uh about london and all the i have a connection with london that goes way back to the 70s and continues to the present day but for 10 years i lived there full time um but uh, oddly enough it's also focused on a house, in this case, an, a, a, an apartment that belonged to a rel- an elderly relative in, mm-hmm. in London who was just an astounding character and it eventually became my apartment where we lived there together. And um, it's basically telling the story of London and England and, uh, and my becoming a part of it and getting to know it with that, with that home and the, the amazing and really large cast of characters that revolved around it mm. as the focal point. Did you instill yourself as a as a person in the music scene when you moved to London? Um, oh, I was I was put there. I, I didn't intend to go there to be a, a music guy. In fact, I went there to, in many respects to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, everybody that I kept meeting was like, oh, you're that guy from that record label and come to our show or come to Mm. our festival I fell in with a bunch of journalists from the NME and other places like that and the and the people who put on the Reading Festival and so for a while I was kind of like the visiting celebrity but that kind of wore off after a while and I I kind of became a more regular Londoner and so yeah I, I didn't didn't do a lot. Of, I I became a fan again, which I had not been able to be for a while. Because when you're running the big label, you can't just show up and enjoy a show. It's like, oh, why are you? Why is he here? Is right. he going to sign Ooh, that he's band? Scouting somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Or yeah. here, hey, take my CD. You got to listen to my band. We we sound just like Green Day. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Well, that's we already How got. How many a Green times Day. did you hear that phrase? Well, thankfully, it's died <laughs> away. But in yeah. the, in the '90s. Probably on an average of ten to twenty times a week, wow. at least. Wow. <laughs> and I'm not, I can say safely, not one band ever got signed as on the strength of that claim. Uh, right. And not one band ever did sound just like Green Day, although they tried mightily. Hmm. But well, well, it's big of you to actually listen to all those demos because I would guess at some point I'd just. Be oh, like at some point I had to give up. I had the the the, the pile in the corner that literally got about six feet high of tapes wow. and tapes and CDs. I mean, they were coming in at the rate of about 50 to 100 a week. Yeah. Um, or more. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. But that's... I felt bad about it because in the early days I tried to, mm-hmm. to give a personal response to to everyone and it just no longer became possible and eventually I wanted to, to kill some of them because <laughs> some of them were... It wasn't so much that they were bad. It was that they were so aggressively bad. It, ah. it was like they felt they were entitled to be superstars and if i did not 
put them out on my label, I was the problem. I was stopping them from what was rightfully theirs. Oh, of course theirs. Right. <laughs> well, I guess that they figured out another, another course of action after harassing you guys for a while. Some of them went on to sell a lot of records. I will name no names. But okay. I can't wait to turn off the microphone. He'll tell me. I won't tell you folks, though. Um, and, uh, well, so let's get back into the, the playlist a little bit, play a few more songs. My guest is Larry Livermore. He's, uh, his, his book, Spy Rock uh, Memories, it's memories, right? It's not memoirs, is it? Memories, that's right. It is right. memories, yeah, is, uh, is out on the Don Giovanni label, and uh, I still have yet to put up that link, and I'm going to do that now, actually. I'd like, I'd like to play a few, uh, a, th- a few songs that were other local musicians, not, not necessarily that punk either, but okay. that expressed our local culture, and starting with... Um, well, this first one I want to say a little bit about, it's, it's called Harvest Time, and it was by a band called Nuisance. They were on Lookout. Oh, yeah. And um, every year on, on K-Mud, when I was a DJ, I mean, it would be like this big thing in October when it came time for harvest was like the central point of the, of the year. It was like life and death for all of the, I mean, l- mm. if, you, if, if you got your marijuana harvest in... Is this what they're referring to? That's what they're talking it about. Is. That's How what the song. funny! It's such a different culture. And it was the whole wow. the whole community thinks about nothing else because if it doesn't come through, it's it was just like the the yeah, primitive income. agricultural communities of mm-hmm. of, tradi- of ancient times. I mean, if the crop fails, everything fails. There's no money. There's no right. nothing that year. Right. Um, and so. I would like each week. I'd say, well, it's not quite time. But when one Saturday, I'd say, okay. It's the, the it, we're here. It's har- and then I'd put that song on harvest time and we would resound across the hills and it was like a celebration of uh, of the land and its bounty. Uh, and which record is this off of? This is a uh, Confusion Hill is the album okay. by, by a band called Nuisance. Nuisance they were yep. they were from Humboldt County, which was the county directly to the north of ours. I'll have to say just as a I'm I'm no longer haven't been for a long time a marijuana user and I don't even think too highly of the drug but at that time in that place it was absolutely central to the story and mm. I don't, I don't want to be preaching one way or the other I just you know to put it in context yes this song is all about marijuana awesome I had no idea and so we're going to listen to some nuisance my guest is Larry Livermore if you want you can uh, post questions on the um on the the playlist for him and we'll be back in a little bit stay tuned
hundred yards from the river's edge. But when I woke up on Sunday morning, I found its waters on my doorstep. I thought about a saving all those things that I held so dear. But I saw them all in a different light as the waters came so near. And if you lived in Myers Flat or Bambo, Miranda or Phillipsville, Sprout Creek or Weot, Scotia or Rio Del, Red Crest or Redway or by the bridge down at Sylvandale, you got to know that old Eel River better than a Slides closed down 101 at Benbow to my north. And the bridge went out at Leggett. We were cut off from the south. And I started thinking how a month ago we were complaining about a drought. And if you lived in Myers Flat or Benbow, Miranda or Phillipsville, Sprout Creek or Weot. Or Rio Del Red Crest or Red Wave Or by the bridge down at Sylvandale You got to know that old Eel River Better than a most folks will
heard that little uh, that uh, that exclamation there. So, um, what did we just listen to, Larry? Uh, that was uh, Brent's TV, a song called Trinidad, the updated version. Uh, it's not. They change the words for some reason and start singing about Saigon. It's actually originally about Trinidad, California, which is a very tiny town on the north coast of about maybe 300 people. Oh, wow. Um, and before that was Daryl Cherney, who's not well-known in punk rock circles. He was a um, Earth First activist and partner with Judy Berry, who got, um, who were, got bombed by parties unknown to this day mm. when they were on their way to an Earth First rally in 1990. Yeah, that's, that's uh, chronicled yeah. in your book. Yeah. And uh, we started out with, with nuisance uh, harvest time about the uh, Humboldt and Mendocino County marijuana harvest. Uh, you know, Daryl's song I, I really like primarily because it just it's a story of something that really happened in our community. There was a big flood in 1986. The Eel River ran through our whole, like, hundred miles or so of, uh, of our watershed and it it washed away a lot of people when I first met Daryl he was like he says in the song living a hundred yards in the water's edge and his house got basically overwhelmed wow. and but I really like what he does with the, the it's just full of place names the whole chorus is nothing but singing all the names of the little villages along the river mm-hmm. and he mentions a lot in the verse too and uh I, like my friend Aaron Kamabus, I mentioned earlier, we were both very big on the sense of place in our writing, um, in songwriting, uh, prose writing, whatever. I feel it's really vital to name, even if you're naming a place that nobody ever heard of, if you give it a name, it, it, it locates it, it, it makes it more real, and that's kind of mm. the job of the writer is to, to, is to create a world. Yeah. And speaking of creating a world or creating a culture, uh, Brent's TV were just one of my greatest inspirations. They were from a, a, one of our bigger towns of population, about 15,000, co- uh, called Arcata. And it was kind of Eureka and Arcata were these towns that were 300 miles from San Francisco and several hundred miles from Portland. And so they basically existed in a media dead zone. You, and if there was going to be any culture there, you had to create it yourself even though they were a, a substantial town. And so it was, it was kind of a very quirky kind of place. And they um, started this band where they were only going to play outdoors or in laundromats or in the parking lot at the local co-op. And for the most part, they, they stuck to it. I mean, hmm. a lot of people felt that I sold them out by getting them to come into a recording studio. <laughs> and, uh, and yet I'm really, really, it was, it's one of my proudest accomplishments in Lookout Records. Uh, people often ask me what, you know, of all of those big records you did, what are you most proud of? And I, I kind of have to say Brent's TV. I think they maybe sold 1,500 or 2,000 copies total, and they wouldn't have maybe even sold that much if it wasn't for the Lookout name. But that fact that they are preserved, that that moment uh. in time that lasted only for a couple years in, in northern Humboldt, uh, they're such great guys. Some of them went on to be in other bands like the High Fives and the Ne'er Do Wells. Um, oh. uh, but they are, it's just like a really special kind of music. And it, it speaks to me of, of Humboldt and, and those days in, mm. a, in a way that very few things, uh, very few things do. Neat. So, so. In general, what would you say is the most satisfying thing about running a record label? <laughs> oh. What's <laughs> What's the most satisfying thing about running a radio station? Mm, well, I, I don't. You're run running one. it for for these couple of hours. You're you're in charge here. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, for me, it, it's connecting uh, people and music, you know, and, and, and hopefully it's an appropriate connection, and you never know, and people can turn off their radio. But for me, that's why I'm here, and that's um, you're the first person who actually ever asked me a question. Well, I guess we've got that, that in common then. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I would say, you know, one, one step beyond what the record label is of, of building an, an alternative uh, structure that, that, you know, continues to generate uh, and transmit culture. That I, I once had a long talk with Brett Gurowitz in the, somewhere in the 90s uh, when Epitaph, just about the time that Epitaph really got huge also because mm-hmm. of the offspring. And he told me, and I don't doubt it, that one of his main art forms, not just hobbies or enjoyments, but art forms, was the actual science of running a business, of, of designing. Mm. You know, he had studied a lot of different <coughs> management theories and principles, and that he was really into structuring the business. I mean, that that was almost as exciting, if not more so, than playing in bands and so on. Oh, neat. And I kind of knew what he was talking about because I had done a little study at, at when I was a student at Berkeley uh, on on how to, well, at, at that time, management theory, especially Japanese management theory, was a big thing, like, because at that time, when Japan was thriving and America was not doing so great, mm-hmm. and they were... So there's all these ideas about forming personal relationships as opposed to always just looking at the bottom line. And um, it's kind of, I took that to heart too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I always wanted to start things. I, when I, you, you called me a journalist several times, and in a sense that's true. When I was 12 years old, I started my own, news, my own newspaper because I didn't like the class newspaper. We had a thing called the, 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 the teacher, the nun uh, started got us to start a, cl- a class newspaper called the 52 Star News. This was Catholic school, lots of kids, 52 kids in a class, and we oh, had wow. the 52 stars. Oh, got it. Okay. But I thought it was like, you know, all they ever talked about was, oh, we're all excited about this new homework assignment and the science fair and all that. And I so I did a parody newspaper of it uh, called the 52 Asterisk News. And <laughs> this was like, before copy machines or anything, I literally had to type it on a manual typewriter with carbon paper. That's uh, oh, so yeah. I could make two or three copies and pass them around to all the kids. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time. I mean, the kids thought it was hilarious, and it was the first time I got any recognition for something I created myself. My mom, meanwhile, is like, "Why can't you just join the regular paper and, and be part of things instead of always making fun of other people?" Mm. Um, which you know, it was kind of how Lookout Magazine started, too. Yeah. And and uh, kind of how a lot of things I started. Oh. But, you know, with the passing years, I've kind of come to terms with, with society and culture, and I'm kind of glad to be part of the of the bigger whole now. I don't feel a need to, to push against the, the, the harness all the time anymore. Well, and you have more choices, too. I mean, at 12 years old, that's all that's there. You know, and you're not really, you don't have a larger world either. So to to sort of, if it's not really what you want to do, there's nowhere else to look except to create it. And as an adult, we do have, there are, there are other types of music that we can listen to. There are other types of, you know, magazines or whatever that we can choose to read. You know, yeah, good old mom. When I started, <laughs> uh, when I started. She just wanted it to be easy. She's, she's a lovely lady. And <laughs> I'm fa- I'm, in fact, I'll be seeing her soon when I go out to do the book appearances in California. Mm-hmm. She's 94 and a half now. Wow. And still 
sharp as a bell. Oh, that's great. Uh, but when I started the Lookout magazine, she says, well, that's all well and good. Why, but why don't you go work for the New York Times if you're going to be a newspaper writer? And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, Mom, it's not quite that simple. Well, she wanted to make it easy for you. Yeah. She just wanted you to succeed. I probably should have followed her advice, but then well, a lot of people I know went to work for the New York Times, got laid off, and, uh, you know. So, yeah, you never you know. know. Oh, I did want to mention, you have a, uh, you're doing a book signing tomorrow? There's a couple of them coming up mm-hmm. in uh, both in the, the cultural hot spot, uh, so they say, of Brooklyn. Um, tomorrow night, I'm going to be along with a couple of poets and another writer at uh, Booksog Nation, the very trendy Booksog Nation. I, Aaron will hate me for saying that, but it is pretty trendy. Um, at 100 North 3rd Street in Williamsburg at 7 o'clock, yeah. And uh Saturday night at Molasses Books in Bushwick, uh, 770 Hart Street. I'm afraid I can't remember the nearest subway stop, but it's sort of in the heart of Bushwick, and that's at 7, pretty sure 7.30 at Molasses Books. And I will be talking and reading and signing or whatever they want me to do. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm at the, the people's mercy. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and and you're here today, so thank you for making time in this schedule. This is really a thrill. Uh, I mean, I'm just this is my other favorite uh, independent radio station. Mm. Well, I, sh- I should say my other there's there's K Mud in Garberville, there's Calix in Berkeley, and and there's uh, WFMU. There's those are those are the big three, the, the pillars. The, the, the well, and, you know, when I first got I, in touch I, with I you. Can I just mention Calix, though? One other thing. Of my, my friend, My friend uh, Kendra has, has tweeted that uh, she's there at Calix and listening. And oh. it's, just, it's just like drinking coffee and hanging out uh, like, like the old days. It's just I mean, like you're there. Yeah. She's, that, was, that was really nice to hear from somebody at Calix. Mm. And, you know, when, uh, when Larry and I first were in contact about coming here, he did say that, that – uh, and you did talk about that briefly, about sort of knowing about FMU from afar. And really, a lot of Lookout bands came through FMU. Um, I know that there's, I think that there's a Green Day uh, bootleg. Almost positive. Session. Yeah, in fact, somebody, somebody just emailed me about it. I wasn't even familiar with it. Yeah, and there's, uh, and there's definitely a Neurosis one. And I know that the Screeching Weasel session was on VHS. On I wouldn't be surprised if Operation Ivy came here. Yeah, they were here too. Yeah, yeah. I just I'm not sure if there were actual bootlegs put out of that session. I would guess that there probably were. And you know, I mean, and I've met my share of people from the Bay Area, and they, you know, and and now that you mentioned how popular they were, people were were asking me like, "Ooh, do you have the Operation Ivy live thing?" Like people were asking me, and. Um, and I was more into a lot of the heavier music, especially at the time that I that I visited that area. And you I tell me, East Coast hardcore? Uh, no, more like oh, metal. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, but well, um, there's a thin line between those. Two. I, well, I guess um, that yes, that we could have another program about that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and just about genres and where do you split the line, and just about where you categorize records. Do you own every copy? Uh, do, do you own every Lookout record? <laughs> No, I have uh, MP3s of most of them. <laughs> oh, okay. It's kind of, I, I just started, because when I sort of purged myself of all my belongings and 
and moved several times to to England and back again. Right. Yeah. A, you a have lot of it, a lot of, of it went by the board, and I thought, you know, who's ever gonna? I don't need these vinyl records anymore. I, oh. I kind of feel a little bit weird not to have them now, but yeah, you know, the it, I was never a format kind of guy. I was always, mm. if if I had known back in the '80s that there was going to be such a thing as electronic uh, computer versions of music. I would have said, great. I mean, mm. I, I mean, CDs were the big drama then, whether we sh- whether it was punk to be on CD or not. Right. Yeah. But yeah, to me, my I was always about getting the music out. You know, how many uh, press, you know, copies of a, of a seven inch, or what colors it was in, or which pressing it was. Pe- a lot of people, especially boys tend to be obsessed with that stuff. I never know, and, and some girls. <laughs> I generally, they get really frustrated with me because I haven't got a clue for oh. about most of it. Okay, interesting. W- what's your favorite? Um, I know you said you were proud of, of getting Brent's TV, you know, actually recorded and on record. Do you have a favorite record in your catalog? <laughs> you know, is, that's, that's like, too much to ask, um, is it? Ask, Ask a ask a mother which one is her favorite child. Okay, okay. It's not, it's not it's not a question withdrawn. Yeah, but nuisance and Brent's TV are both I'm proud of in the same mm-hmm. in the same way. Like they were something that nobody might have heard either of them otherwise. Well, nuisance not so much, but Brent's TV. It, I just I'm I really love those because they kind of came out of the same kind of backwoods culture. Yeah. Um, so we've got we got about five or six minutes left um do you want to play something oh geez i was all set i, I know I, you should have stopped me from talking so much I know, because I d- uh i was gonna i was gonna play an op ivy song and a green day song and a crimp shrine song and uh, that would take up most more than the time we have left already uh and i was going to play a neurosis song and tell the story about when they auditioned well, I didn't ask them to. They insisted on auditioning their whole Word is Law album live for me in their studio and played, sat me on a stool and played it, you know, about 20 feet away from me mm. and then made me go out and look at the at the uh, collapsed freeway after this was the night after the Oakland or San Francisco, San Jose earthquake. earthquake. Yeah. And uh, I got to talk, tell about it because there was uh, anybody that knows the Word is Law, there's a song on there where the guitar goes like a siren or... I can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have looked it up. I which which one it is, but I'm looking at the spot floodlights on a collapsed freeway and hearing the bulldozers grinding and uh, hearing in my head that the echoes of that guitar and that siren sound and thinking whoa. But that was the time when you know the year when everything started you know moving inevitably towards lookout becoming a big deal and me kind of moving being pulled away from the mountain and, and back to the city. Mm. If we only have time for just one more song, I would like to indulge myself and play uh, a Lookouts song, which okay. um, kind of sums up everything that I, I guess the whole mountain experience was about. And it's called The Green Hills of England, oddly enough. But uh, it's definitely about all this stuff we've been talking about and it's been really great to to be here i've really enjoyed it thanks diane oh well thank you so much for coming and thank you you know for for being you know regardless of what your mom said like like thank god you were that person who wanted to do it his way you know because you really i mean you made a huge difference and 
you know, created or had a very large hand in a scene that was very important to music that that who knows what have happened, you know, and you were there at the starting of Gilman. I mean, there are so many things that you were really right there for that were so important that made such a difference in music now. And I mean, what? No Green Day. I mean, personally, I don't care about No Green Day, but just in terms of like the genre and what they did and what they did for music and that they made it okay for like kids to have purple hair in regular school now. It's like, you know, I could. Including my niece and nephew. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and mom's, I think mom's finally come around too. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if she's uh, listening right right now. Oh, cool. And awesome. Well, uh, mom, I didn't mean anything by that, but, but you know, oh your no, son marches march to his own, you know, drummer. And that's, and we've really all benefited, you know, so thank you. I just want to, and, and so you've got your, your, uh, you're going to be at Book Nation tomorrow night at, Mola- right. at Molasses Books in Bushwick, in Bushwick on Saturday. Yep. And uh, the book is Spy Rock Memories. Larry Livermore, thank you very much. And this is the, the Green Hills of England. Thanks again. All Bye, right. everybody. Bye. <laughs>
And we are back really quickly with Larry Livermore because we have a question. Whoa, of course I shouldn't have let that play. Um, and the question says, can you ask Larry a joke question? Joke? It says oh, a joke well, question. When's the Downfall album coming out? Ah. Well, there was a Green Day song here on the playlist that we unfortunately talked too much and didn't get a chance to play, but uh, it, it's the Green Day song about that that answers the question. It's called No One Knows. Perfect. And with that, we are actually out of here. Thank you, Larry. Here's some Green Day. Why should my fun have to And that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. We are WFMU.